Welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is our episode number 109, released on March 13th, 2019. Today we are going to talk about uh, SurveyMonkey and Usabilla, about the new French tech visas, about the acquisition of the next web, about the recent funding of Talent Garden and much more. We have two pre-recorded interviews as well. Uh, both of these interviews are very timely. One is uh, with the next web CEO and co-founder Boris Feldhausen von Zanten, and the other is with Davide Dattoli, uh, the CEO and founder of Talent Garden. I am your host, Andre Degeler, joined today by Roxanne Varza, director of Station F in Paris, a member of the founding team of Tech.eu and actually one of the first hosts of this podcast. Hi, Roxanne. Great to have you here again. Thank you. It's great to be back. So if you have been with this podcast long enough, you might remember uh, Roxanne being the host of it together with Neil first, right? Yeah, and then yeah together with Neil with and then with Robin. Perfect. Exactly. So uh, Natalie Novik, uh, who normally co-hosts this podcast with me, was not able to get to our virtual studio on time to record this episode, but we will still hear from her. Uh, she will uh, send her event highlights and reading recommendations uh, recorded separately. Now, we have lots of ground to cover today, so let's uh, dive straight into the stories and interviews and discuss what has happened over the past week. I will start with a story from Amsterdam, from uh, where I'm based, which is total coincidence. And this is a story about uh, SurveyMonkey, a big American uh, company, which we uh, mostly know, uh, which has acquired uh, the Amsterdam-based website feedback vendor called Usabilla uh, for 80 million US dollars. So uh, the way we mostly know SurveyMonkey, I guess, it's a place uh, to quickly build a decent-looking survey or poll uh, to send around. But also it uh, turns out that it focuses a lot uh, on customer experience and uh, customer understanding solution. And that basically means getting feedback at every point of the customer journey. And this is where Usabilla uh, fits really great uh, into the picture. For example, what Usabilla does if... Uh, you're in a website that has a uh, usability installed and you see a bug and uh, then you can click at the usability button and then capture the problematic area uh, as a screenshot and send this screenshot with a comment to the website maintainer. Uh, also, usability allows uh, asking the website visitor, for example, a question after they scroll the page all the way down or maybe after they have spent a certain amount of uh, time on the page and so on. So all sorts of uh, different triggers that would then allow you to ask uh, certain questions. Now, an internet publication called Search CRM quotes uh, Nicole France, an analyst at Constellation Research, uh, who gave a good uh, comment on the deal. And uh, the quote uh, begins With Usabilla, uh, SurveyMonkey gains the ability to assess both what customers say uh, through their core survey capability as well as what customers actually do tracking website and mobile app behavior. Uh, more importantly, the combined capabilities give SurveyMonkey's customers added ability to in identify intent. These are insights that make it possible to serve customers better. The quote ends. So the deal supposedly also puts uh, SurveyMonkey in a better position uh, to compete with its longtime rival, a company called Qualtrics, uh, which was recently acquired by SAP. I think the acquisition was announced uh, last year, but only completed this year in January. SurveyMonkey CEO, Zender Lurier told TechCrunch that Qualtrics is now mostly being marketed to SAP customers, which leaves SurveyMonkey a pretty big piece of the market. Nevertheless, uh, the timing of the announcement is quite interesting. I have to say the announcement of the acquisition of Usabilla was made on the first day of a pretty big conference that uh, Qualtrics held in the US. And I highly doubt that uh, it's uh, actually a uh, coincidence. Now, the acquisition of Usabilla also seems to be a good way for uh, SurveyMonkey to expand outside of the U.S., which is where it has most of its uh, clients. Uh, Usabilla says uh, that it has uh, 450 customers in 35 countries. And some of these customers are, for example, uh, Lufthansa or uh, Philips or Vodafone or KLM or Toyota. So this is a pretty a pretty great deal for both companies. Uh, Roxanne, have you heard of Usabilla before this deal? Do you know them? Have you ever used them? 
I'm so embarrassed. No, I had not heard of them before. It sounds like a really, really good deal. And obviously, everybody has heard of SurveyMonkey. So it sounds like a really good acquisition. Yeah, SurveyMonkey is something we all uh, we all kind of know. <laughs> yeah. So th this would be generally it about the deal. But I also uh, wanted to mention one more thing uh, to change the angle a little bit and talk more about uh, usability as a company and uh, about the story of it, which turns to be pretty fascinating, actually. The startup was founded in Amsterdam uh, 10 years ago, 2009. Over all the years of its existence, it has only raised uh, 1 million US dollars. Uh, and uh, I read more about it before the podcast in the Dutch media, and things turn out to not always uh, have been going great uh, for the company. So the founder of uh, Usabilla, uh, named uh, Paul Feugen, uh, had only been with the startup for three years. So it he founded it in 2009, and then in 2012, he decided to focus on his other startup and, uh, and just left. And then uh, Mark van Achteren, uh, who had been with the company for a year back then as the CTO, uh, decided to take the lead and immediately found himself between a rock and a hard place. Because in May 2012, as he told uh, in an interview to the Undernamer, uh, Usabilla was just two months away from filing for bankruptcy. Even though it had attracted customers like Sony and Disney and Sonoma, it, uh, it appears that uh, they uh, had some issues with revenue and cash flow. And in order to, to stay afloat, what one after indeed is that he had to fire uh, 7 out of 11 people uh, in the team and then up to 2015 the company only employed uh, 4 people. As of today, though, the team is 130 people, so many, many, many fold uh, difference. And I think this is a great uh, example of entrepreneurial perseverance. And this is something that I always find uh, really fascinating. It's really an important quality for a founder. Uh, but I also can imagine how hard it is not to give up and keep going. And uh, even though everything around you seems to be against it. So congratulations and uh, good luck to both uh, Usabila and SurveyMonkey. It seems like a great deal for both sides. But Roxanne, do you, uh, do you have any interesting stories of entrepreneurial perseverance uh, around you or, or maybe about yourself? Oh man, I'm surrounded by tons, but I actually think this is a really incredible story because going from like four people to 130 people in such a short amount of time, going from 1 million in, in funding and then getting uh, acquired 10 years later for 80 million, this is just like, it's a crazy good story. So I just think, yeah, I think this is a terrific example. Um, I'm trying to think of, do I have any good stories off the top of my head, but I actually don't because at the moment I feel like the French tech scene is full of uh, so much kind of optimism and so many people are coming here that we actually are focusing perhaps a lot less on the real struggle of entrepreneurship and something that we actually should be talking about a lot more. So you're on the celebration stage. <laughs> I think we're somewhere in the celebration stage and we should really start kind of, you know, getting our, our minds in check because entrepreneurship is not just a celebration all the time. Well, I guess uh, things might change uh, uh, when uh, the government uh, starts uh, doling out uh, less money for startups. Yeah, well, it's not just government funding. I think we just have a general, uh, a good kind of vibe in, in France at the moment with, you know, um, the current administration. And I think a lot of people, given the current geopolitical situation in the UK and the US, like France has actually gotten a lot of momentum just for that. So it's not even just public. A lot of this is actually also from just the private investors as well. Uh, everybody seems to be kind of interested in France and it's been going on for a while. So we're starting to wonder now, like, are things going to calm down? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I have to say also the image of uh, the country as like a tech hub across Europe is just uh, it's just skyrocketed. Everybody seems to be talking about it and look at France, look at what they're doing, uh, look at how cool uh, things are going there. It's uh, it's really interesting. Yeah, I think what's what's kind of amazing is that we have uh, it seems to be like continually you hear about some incredible startups getting funded, incredible startups getting acquired. You hear about, you know, amazing new products and ideas coming out. You hear about, and I even hear on the government end, they've just kind of redone this visa. And so there's just good news coming out. And it feels like, is this ever going to calm down? <laughs> right. So we are going to talk a bit more about uh, the visas and uh, French tech after uh, this interview. And this is the one that I had uh, last week with uh, Boris Feldhausen von Zanten, uh, the co-founder and CEO at the next web. And last week, uh, the company uh, was the 
hero of the news, especially here in the Netherlands, uh, after it was announced that the Financial Times acquired the majority stake in the next web. So I talked to Boris to check uh, what's going to happen uh, with the next web, uh, uh, how the acquisition is going to actually influence uh, the company, whether anything's going to change for the blog or for the event business or for everything else. So check this one out and we will be back in a bit to talk more about the French tech. Hello, uh, this is Andre Degler from Tech.eu, catching up today here in Amsterdam with uh, Boris Feldhausen van Zanten, uh, the co-founder and CEO of the Next Web, the heroes of the last week's news cycle, I guess. That is uh, for the deal uh, they struck uh, with uh, the Financial Times. Hi, Boris. Thanks a lot for taking time to talk today. Thank you. Thank you for that nice introduction. <laughs> Uh, long story short, uh, the FT has just acquired uh, the controlling stake in uh, the next web. And I just wanted to maybe like 10, 15 minutes talk about uh, what it's going to mean for uh, for the company. So first, yeah, can you in two minutes describe what the next web is today? Because what it started with, I think everybody already knows. It started in 2006 as a small conference, 280 people, if I'm not mistaken. And then you added the blog. And so what is it now? What, what else have you added? I'd say it's a digital media brand uh, that informs, inspires, and connects people who love tech. And we do it in a variety of ways. So through media, events, and services. And of course, most well-known is the conference. But we also have the media part with all the stories we write, uh, between 20 and 40 stories a day. Maybe even more if there's an Apple keynote. Um, uh, of course, we have the Tech Hub where we are here, where we are at today. We have uh, 55 skill apps here that we help grow faster. Then we have TNWX, which is uh, an uh, innovation uh, part. So we help uh, companies innovate uh, faster, better by connecting them to skill ups and, and startups. And we have Index, which is uh, one of the largest uh, databases of startups in the world. So it's it's a I, and I hope I didn't forget one of the things we're doing because we're doing a lot. And I think the key is that it's a very um, well-balanced, diversified business model. We have a bunch of activities all under our main brand. So with uh, all those uh, different uh, directions of development, let's put it this way, uh, I have to say that in the announcement, in the official announcement, it was mostly about the event business. And uh, I really noticed, and, and a bunch of other people on Twitter, for example, talked about this, that the website itself was uh, kind of barely mentioned in the announcement. What, what, what does that mean? Yeah, I think the sentence was about synergies and that those were like the most obvious synergies to be um, enjoyed in the beginning. Uh, I think the vision for the future is broader. I did notice the same uh, and I have been explaining like, well, actually we do, do more, there are more synergies, but I will admit that I saw the same thing in the press release. I'm like, oh, I hope they well, people will understand that there's more to us than that. Right. Yeah, I mean, the events are probably the more obvious synergy because if you look at the news content at NextWeb and at the FT, they are a little bit different. The tone of voice just uh, differs a little, <laughs> a little bit. bit different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if they would be, be the same, it would be boring as well, right? So uh, I think it's nice that, like, we talked about the editorial independence a lot and you know, all concludes like these are very separate things and you got to respect that. Yes. And uh, we don't want to be the FT, they don't want to be TNW. We have our own distinct voice and that's fine. Right. And I think uh, I saw somewhere that it was saying that uh, for the next web, uh, the event business brings in about 70% of the revenue. Is that so? No, I don't know where you picked that up. Maybe somebody guessed that. Yeah, that yeah, 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 I think, yeah. I don't think it was an yeah. official... Uh... No, no, I would never say that. Then it's not true. So. Right. <laughs> so the official answer there is that that's undisclosed. But I think one of the things we're proud of is that it's very well balanced and we have multiple income streams and they balance out. So I'm actually proud that it's not the case that it's just one thing that right. generates so much revenue, but because that would also make us very vulnerable. And we're not, so that's cool. Can you tell whether all the parts of the business are profitable? So the business overall is profitable. And of course, with a business like ours, it's, I mean, it's not impossible. And I know to a degree, but um, like, I don't like splitting it out. I think our goal is also to have a brand uh, that people trust 
that we monetize in a variety of ways. So for instance, people read the site and then based on that, they might come to the conference and based on the conference, they might, you know, hire our people to help them innovate faster, or maybe they will ask for a space here. So there's so much overlap, overflow. It's like a funnel. So you could then go and say, well, how do you split off one thing and, and isolate it to see if it's profitable? And you're like, well, why would you spend the energy if the whole thing makes sense? But I also remember that uh, there used to be uh, more uh, spin-off businesses like Twitter Counter that was shut down uh, last year, right? That's a long time ago, though. So at the time we started TNW, we also have had Twitter Counter and I think a bunch of other yeah, I remember some, yeah. Some, some of that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and I think we've always had our hobbies. I have my hobbies still. But like at one point we realized like, all right, this is now has a, this has so much potential, so much worldwide reach. It would really be a waste if we would not focus all our energy on TNW. That's when we split off Twitter counter and the other companies made them independent. Uh, we got them their own management uh, right. teams. And then we, so the only thing we did was be a shareholder basically so you were not involved operationally in no, twitter counter no, when it was closed no no i haven't for years no so i was aware of course as a shareholder but uh, but not op operationally so you mentioned a hobby so what is it that you yeah, have a hobby yeah <laughs> well i i have some shares in in other companies but they're all very small right. and so there there's one fun project with, which feels like a hobby um, um so there's a, a system called virtuate uh, so virtual.com and it's a it's it's like a virtual assistant for your email so when i get email now uh that uh, i know the answer to but it's too much work to write I, I drag email to a folder and then it automatically gets a reply from my virtual assistant and but it's fully automated so it's a, it's a very uh cool system and and the way that started is that i spoke to a cto that had just sold this company and then he said, yeah, I have a few hobby projects. And I said, oh, I have a sort of a concept for something that I would love to use. So I told him this story. And then he's like, hey, wait a minute. I could actually build that. That's fairly simple to build. And probably more people need it. So he built it for me. And now more people use it. So. Is this what I talked to today by email? Um, no, that was a real person. <laughs> no. Is this what but, you answer every time you're asked this? Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But you can send me an email uh, and everybody who listens can send me an email. So I'm Boris at the next web. And what you can do is send me an email just empty within the subject, do you have time for coffee? And then I'll drag that email to a folder which is, says no time for coffee. And then you'll get a very polite email explaining why I don't have time for coffee. And it's really funny written. And it's even funnier when you realize like it's not an actual person writing it. So uh, that's a funny test to do. Right. This is uh, this is really interesting one. So uh, we just uh, we just also met uh, Patrick, your uh, your co-founder, and I read his uh, post uh, in the morning about the deal. And what he wrote uh, is that this is a new chapter uh, for the next web. So what does what does it mean? What's going to change for the blog, for the conference, for everything else? I'm curious to see how Patrick would answer this question. But the way I see it is that we've always focused on quality. And we had a very sort of inward look uh, at our company. We just thought we're going to organize the best conference and that we hope people will come. And I feel like this is the time where we should sort of realize like the stuff we do is actually good. The quality is high. Now we just need to convince more people to know about us. The way I describe that is uh, like with the amount of readers we have and uh, since, uh, you know, how long we've been around, I'm guessing, and it's a, just a guess, but like, Maybe 20 million people know about us, right? That's, that's I guess. And then, yeah, and then I think w like the amount of people that work like professionally with digital is about 600 million people. So that's the amount of people I want to reach. And, and I want them all to know that we exist. And then if they decide, I know that TNW exists, but I'm not going to go to the events and I'm not going to read the post, that's fine. But at least I want them to make that decision. And now like too many people don't know us. So, so for me, that's sort of, I feel like, all right, we've invested, we've built, we've come to a point where I'm comfortable with what we have. To, like, I like our brands. I like how people look at our brand and talk about us. I like the products and services that we have. I would just want more people to know about that. And how does this deal help you in that? 
Well, the FT is a brand that you don't have to explain to anybody, right? Like you, my mother knows the FT and, and my grandmother as well. So, so I, I think that will help. They like they literally have access to like the Fortune 5000 boardrooms in the world. Um, so, uh, like I, I don't have a like a concrete plan or or example to give you, but, but that's I think the synergies that we're looking for. So you don't really think that a lot of things are going to change for the blog itself, for example, how you write, uh, what you write, and so on and so forth? No. So they, they made it very clear when we first started talking. They said, listen, if we take a share in a company, our strategy is always to uh, not get involved as, as much as possible, which means that we're available, but we're never going to ask you to do a thing. And they said, it's your vision, it's your strategy that we like. So that's what we're investing in. And then we back off. Do you have our phone number? So if there's anything you need, just ask. And that's also something that was very uh, comforting for us, right? Because we didn't want to sell the company. We didn't want to leave. We wanted to make the next step or like the next chapter, the next level. So we were looking for someone to help us get there, but not take over the company. And then when we had these conversations, we said, all right, we're going to make a four-year plan to uh, world domination. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And we're going to present that to, to you. And then if you like it, then that's what we're going to do. And so we have the freedom now to follow the plan that we made. Uh, if after two years we say, listen, we want to dramatically change the plan. All right, then they have the majority. So they could say, no, we want you to stick to the plan. But we hope, of course, then if it would ever get to that, that we would have good reasons and they would listen. But anyway, as long as we can follow our plan, we have freedom to do whatever we want. So what should we expect to see within these four years? Just something. Something? Well, so again, <clears throat> it would be tempting to talk about the new things we want to do, right? But I, I don't want to talk about that yet. But I, I so much uh, enjoy the things we're doing right now. And I think like if we write a great article and like 20,000 people read it, I, I'm excited because I'm like, well, that's cool. 20,000 people read it. But then on the other hand, I'm thinking, yeah, but 500,000 people should have read it because it's a great story and it could help people do their jobs better and, and see opportunities or, or threats like that could help their business. So I think like, yeah, for now, I'm more comfortable thinking about let's keep doing the, the thing we're doing, but just do it even more and better with more reach. Right. So how do you how do you raise awareness of uh, TNW brand across the world? So I mean you've been doing it already for uh, what 13 years. Uh, yeah. Not yeah. without success, but like how do you uh, yeah. how do you scale yeah. it? Well, there is a marketing plan obviously right. and 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 I'm excited about that. I just don't want to spoil the surprise yet. But uh, like that th those are the things I'm excited about. I look forward to reaching out more uh, to traveling more myself. Uh uh, visit more conferences, uh, talk to more clients, uh, all these things. I, I, I kind of feel like I, I'm, this is um, like not realistic, but I, I, I kind of feel like I've been hiding for 13 years, just, you know, hunched over my computer, just focused on, on and, and now I feel like, all right, now it's time to sort of close the computer, look up. You know, we have, I, I have people here that are so much better at their job than I could ever be. Like, I don't, I don't want to write anymore. That's, that's, if the best writers in the world so so uh so i feel like all right now is the time to go out there and, and yeah see the world as someone who reads your newsletter i don't feel like you've been hiding at all i, th <laughs> I feel yeah. i feel i know you very well well even though we don't talk that often <laughs> yeah i i do enjoy uh, writing the weekly uh, yeah that's that's a cool thing it's it's really funny because i started doing that i think two years ago yeah something like that yeah and 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 the reason was somebody came up to me and they said listen there's sort of an automated newsletter it goes out i think once a week with the the like automatically generated the the most read stories of the week and it's got like 150,000 subscribers and it's basically a waste and then they said so we're not monetizing it there's we have nothing to lose it's just subscribers and they said yeah so i said all right then i'm just gonna treat it as my personal diary and just talk to these people and now it's got a, i think 200 000 subscribers and it's just so 
It's a hell of a diary. So awesome. Yeah. And, and so every week I try to come up with a really personal story and I email it as if I'm emailing it to my friends. And I think that's the attraction. People feel like, oh, it's just Boris email, emailing me with his doubts or something he's excited about. And so I enjoy that. So, so if you're listening and you're not subscribing yet, go to the site. It's in the sidebar. Try it for a few weeks. If you don't like it, unsubscribe. It's fine. And I reply to every uh, email I get as well. So a lot of people reply. How many of them do you get? I think about 50. So, uh, so like, so it, it really depends on the story. So sometimes I'll write a story, I get maybe, you know, 20 replies. Sometimes I'll write a story and it's like 500 replies. And then, so then it's harder, obviously, to reply. But uh, yeah. So. And that's where uh, virtue it comes into work. <laughs> I, 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 I promise I've never used it for that, but I, maybe I should <laughs> because it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of writing, are you actually involved in uh, editorial processes now at the next web? Up to a level. So I, I really care about uh, the about everything we do, right? So I am involved with the conference and 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 with the consultancy and and with the building here, and, and so every part basically. Uh, but I have a great uh, I have great writers, uh, a great publisher, and and so uh, it's so what I I'd say. Like I read the stories, right? Every now and then I see a story and then I, I feel like that story is a great example of the stories we should write. And, and then I talk to the publisher and I say, this is what I love about what we do, right? And every now and then there's a story where I'm like, well, it's fine that we wrote it, but, but <laughs> why, right? So, so it's, it's more subtle that uh, like once or twice a week, I'll just, you know, I'll ask a question or give some positive feedback, but. That's it. Right. Uh, back to the deal. Uh, in one of the reports, uh, I think you said uh, that you started looking for a sale about a couple of years ago, and then you didn't want to uh, attract VC money. Uh, why was that? Well, when we started the company, when Patrick and I started the company, we had a conversation at one point, and we said, what kind of company do we want to build? And then we thought, uh, we want to build a company that could outlast us. So uh it would be great if at one day we're so old and gray and and slow that uh you know we retire but the company lives on that would be great and then of course if if you get vc money that that means that from that moment on you're you you just got to focus on some kind of liquidity event and probably an exit and and sell the company because that's just the game which is fine of course but it's not something we were interested in so so we were more interested in finding a strategic partner that liked our vision and strategy and could help us get there. I get it, right. So uh, another question then, what was your uh, cap table like before the deal and what is it like now? So without going into too many details, so uh, before the deal, Patrick and I had a majority and now we have a minority. But to me, it doesn't feel like a, huge change so um, so yeah did you sell uh, your stock or were there other uh, investors shareholders who uh, sold it um so the non-managing shareholders were bought out and replaced by ft right Make, makes sense. So, and back to this uh, four-year uh, plan, does it also mean that uh, four years is the time frame in which you are contractually obliged to stay with the company? No. Um, we have a four-year plan, um, but then there's still... Um, yeah, no, it's, it's very attractive for us to stay with the company as long as possible. Yeah. And that's the way we wanted it as well. So, we, yeah. Um, so no, it's not like in four mm -hmm. years, we're, we, no. <laughs> right. So, uh, so the in, deal yeah. is still very new, right? It was last yeah, Tuesday yeah, yeah. now, so I'm still struggling with what I can and can't <laughs> say. So every now and then I gotta think like, right, how am I gonna word this? But, uh, so it's good that I'm having the conversation <laughs> with you. It's sort of a trial run of, yeah. yeah. So in many cases, in many reports, I think this the deal is kind of looked at as a success of the uh, general media industry. So like a publication that's been, I don't know, the industry's darling in many ways uh, for many years. And now uh, there is this uh, deal and it's, uh, it's an exit of sorts. And uh, 
I mean, do you think you have found this uh, ultimate uh, business model for a media company, the way to monetize, the way to be successful financially? Yeah. So first of all, I don't see it as an exit, right? So I, I, I traded my old shareholders for new ones right. and, and there's a change of control and, and they have bought like the deciding vote in the board, but, but it doesn't feel like an exit at all. So I'm just happy to get back to work and, and stay at the company for as long as possible. Um, I, I love it when you say that we're an industry darling. So, so thank you for that. Uh, I, and we also saw like the last few months, there was so much bad news about media and, and we were looking forward to the moments to have some good news. Right. So, so that was just great. And, and we, we told the, um, like everybody who worked for us, we said, listen, this, this was a, the, the due diligence, it took so long. It was so detailed. They looked at every single detail and, and the fact that after all that due diligence, they decided to go forward with the deal is a huge, uh, sign of the quality that we were able to deliver like the whole company, right? So, uh, so we said like, they looked at all your work and, and you passed the test, Rachel, and, and, and not just by anyone, by the FT, right? And, and their test is, <laughs> is difficult. So uh, that made us, uh, gave us huge pride. Uh, pr yeah. made us really proud and everybody in the team loved it, right? Because it is great to work at a company and have, have been vetted by such a company. So. Uh, if we have the winning model, um, like that's a, that's a difficult claim to make, but I do think we have a theory, we have a vision and a strategy for where we want to go. And I think the FT liked it enough to become a majority shareholder. So, so yeah. There's something there. I see. Do you think it's actually possible still to monetize and be successful financially for a media company while staying a pure media company? So the the interesting thing is that the answer to that was yesterday was different yesterday, different today, different tomorrow, right? But because this is such a dynamic field that there is no uh there's no there's no answer to that, right? Because the, the, the variables are changing every day. And I think that's exciting, right? So I, I started this when everything was uncertain, but I had nothing to lose. And I think that's a huge difference. And I started noticing early when I was talking to media companies, like more uh, mature, like older media companies, to them, the internet was a disruptor. It's the thing that screwed up their business model that worked for them for you know ages and then the internet came along and it screwed up everything and but i i had nothing to lose so for me digital the internet was just an opportunity and i knew this opportunity was going to change every day and and like the the way to win at this was to change with the the tide with the with the innovation and the changes and so for us, so we always said like uh, for most media companies, um, technology is a necessary evil. Uh, and for us, it was a warm bath, right? right. That, that's sort of the difference. And I noticed when I would speak to, like I, re I remember when the iPad came out and I, we were just because we liked it, like the first in line to get one. And then we were thinking like, what can I do with this magical device? And then I would speak to a publisher a few months later and they're like, ugh, there's a new thing we got. Well, we put some consultants on it and yeah, of course we're going to invest uh, like a few million in it to see if it works, but ugh, another thing, right? That's sort of the, the way people talked about it. And we're, and, and then, so I produced a magazine for a while on, on, oh, on yeah, the Oh yeah, I remember that one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was great fun to make it. So the way I did it was we uh, found an intern, design intern. And I said, I have a great deal for you. You can make a whole magazine by yourself. You'll be the designer, uh, the copywriter. You'll be the publisher all in one. And we're going to do it together, right? It's going to just be an amazing adventure. And he's like, yeah, totally. Like, uh, how cool is that? You're fresh out of art school and you can make your own magazine, everything. So, so that's how we did it. So the cost for making the magazine was like, 
I don't know, 1500 euros a month, right? That was what we produced the magazine for. And then I remember speaking to a publisher and, and he's like, yeah, it's really expensive, right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Because I'm thinking like 1500 euros is a lot, a of, lot money. of money. Yeah. He's like, uh, and then I said, so how much money are you spending? And he's like, oh, a million the first year. And I'm like, what? And, and they're like, well, of course, because you need a, and then they start listing all, all the things. And I'm like, right, all right, this is my competitive edge, right? So I see it just, I, I'll, I'll work on that, that on the evenings because it's just exciting to me. I like this. You know, nobody has to tell me like work the whole night through. Like we would make a, a magazine in the weekends, right? So I, I would invite a few people and said, I'm going to pay for food. We're going to stay at the office the whole weekend and just produce a, a magazine in one weekend. Who's up for it? There were always a few people said like, yeah, sure. Sounds like, like fun. And we were, would work the whole night and not sleep. And then, so I think that's sort of the difference between, um, yeah, the like people who like technology, who, who, who are interested in digital and the companies that are disrupted by it. That makes sense. And by the way, I think one of the main reasons why the next web has this status of industry darling that I mentioned before, it, I think it's probably because so many people uh, in the industry, journalists right now, used to work for the next web. <laughs> yeah. I mean, back yeah. in 2000 and. Uh, 12 for example when i was an intern at the next web uh, like a lot of people were there as well alex uh, from crunchbase was there and uh, there's so many other people and robin uh, uh, my current editor-in-chief at TechU was still there uh, and I, I think this is uh, one of the reasons uh, do you actually want to like uh, hire more people to work for editorial now that you have this uh, deal done yeah we do have a growth plan and, and more writers is, is part of that so I don't have anything to announce yet, but if you're a good writer, yeah, contact us. Or a good developer. Or uh, basically, if you're good at anything, talk to me. Yeah. But um, I, I can tell you it was heartwarming. Like all the people who worked for us, who wrote stories of this is how my time at TNW was. And we always used to joke when people left, we would say, you can never leave TNW. Like, like TNW stays with you wherever you go. And I'm, I'm, I'm really proud and happy that I'm still friends with a lot of people who worked for us. Uh, and, and that all sort of showed, you know, we saw that online when the news came out. So uh, the, I think it's a great sign if, if people who leave the company still like the company, right? Because it's so easy, like if you work there, you're sort of in love with the whole thing and then you leave and then suddenly you look at it from a different perspective and you're like, oh, actually it sucked. But then people are so loyal and lovingly how they talk about their time at TNW. So I, I think that's a great, like the, the, the best compliment you can get. Right. I promised it was going to be like a 15-minute interview. Now it's been almost half an hour. So this is probably <laughs> what I'm going to uh, leave you with. Thanks a lot again for taking the time My and uh, good luck with everything. And uh, yeah, if, if you ever want to talk about uh, technology and stuff, uh, you can always come and co-host our podcast with myself and uh, that would be Natalie. Great. I'm totally up for that. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the podcast of tech.eu, episode number 109. I am here. My name is Andre Degeler, and uh, today joined by Roxanne uh, Varza. And we were just talking about uh, the French tech. And particularly last week, uh, there was uh, uh, the announcement uh, about the new French tech visa that was finally approved. So, Roxanne, can you talk more about this? What, uh, what has happened and uh, why is it so good? First of all, I want to say I'm definitely not as qualified as the French tech director director, Kat Borlangan. So she's actually the person who initiated this visa. She's the one who's brought it into play. She's really the person who could, who could speak best to it. But of course, I'm happy to go into a little bit of detail. So we've had visas in France for a while um, that will help foreign entrepreneurs and foreign investors come to France. This is a visa designed for startup employees. And we've been talking about it for a long time. She actually took over running La French Tech towards the end of last year. They made an announcement with President Macron about this um, not too long ago, but actually it's come into play really, really quickly. And so the way that this visa works, essentially startups in France have to respond to some criteria. It's pretty straightforward, basic 
criteria, you have to be a French-based company. Um, you have to, for example, have raised funding with a French VC or participate in one of their referenced uh, incubator programs, or you have to have a current specific tax status that's relevant for certain startups. You only have to respond to one of those pieces of criteria, so not all of them, and you're able to hire uh, foreign employees for your company relatively easy with this new visa that they put into place. It costs less than 400 euros to do it. Um, I think it's probably one of the most attractive, simple, straightforward employee visas uh, in the world for startups. Um, and so we're expecting a lot of people to take advantage of that. And I think Kat made an announcement that something like over 10,000 startups in France would be able to qualify to get these visas for their companies. So we're expecting it to make a pretty big dent uh, in the French tech ecosystem. Yeah, this is, an, this is an amazing deal. Yeah, I mean, have you heard anything that is kind of that simple uh, for startups across Europe or around the world so far? Yeah, no, not really. I am more or less familiar with the uh, with how things are here in the Netherlands. I mean, we also have pretty simple procedure, but I don't think it's as simple and also as cheap as uh, as you're getting now. Yeah, I think also, I mean, we've heard stories, a lot of the times people hear stories from the US, uh, people pay oh. ridiculous amounts to get visas, they have to go through all kinds of legal, uh, you know, they get lawyers. And, you know, and here, I think what they've tried to do is really make it quick, cheap, uh, very straightforward. So really, startups don't waste their time having to do that. And I'm so happy because I feel like they announced it just a few months ago, and now they're finally making it happen. And I actually have startups at Station F that have this visa. Um, so I have a few. I think we have one Korean team, for example, that they told us they were able to get this visa really quickly. It's only existed for about a week or two, and they already have the visa. So that's great. And we have other companies that are getting it. So I'm really, really hopeful about it. And how were things before this uh, visa was approved? Uh, what did you have to do before that to get to hire an employee from overseas? So I was actually hired as an overseas employee at Microsoft. It took me a really long time. <laughs> uh, I think we paid quite a bit more than 400 euros. And obviously, Microsoft wasn't a startup. I think the biggest issue for startups hiring is that you know, the, the problem before was that you would have to prove that you cannot find a European to do the job. It means the job has to be open for like two months and that you have to show that you didn't hire anyone and it gets really complicated. Now, essentially, you respond to this criteria, you can hire whoever you want. You don't need to wait. And that, I think, is, is really such a great thing for startups that they don't have time to waste. Uh, have you heard any opinions that uh, regulation kind of takes the jobs from the French employees and stuff like that, because this is something I would I would certainly expect to hear. I haven't heard that at all yet. Um, and I think probably because it's also coming from the startup ecosystem that is really today very Franco-French when you consider it to compare it to, for example, London or Silicon Valley that have very international populations. Um, and so I think a lot of the community actually realizes that we need international talent if we want to be building uh, these big international companies that are based here. So I actually haven't heard that, but that could also be because I think our ecosystem is conscious that this is something they need. Well, that makes sense. And uh, uh, last thing I wanted to ask, because I'm really not that familiar with uh, how the regulation is in France. So how easy is it for a startup uh, to, to come to France now to work? So actually, they have this great program. This is also another French tech initiative that's been around for a few years. It's called the French Tech Ticket. Um, and so this is a program for foreign entrepreneurs, and they will apply to this program. And again, they've gone through a system uh, of working with a local incubator. So if you are a startup and you apply to, you know, Station F or NUMA or one of the programs that are here and you get accepted through this program, they bring you over, they give you a little stipend. So you have some money to spend. They get you a whole bunch of resources. You have a, a visa that lasts for one year. Um, so this, I mean, it's, it's really easy if you're selected to that program. If you're not selected to that program, then you have to go through getting your own visa yourself, and that can often be a lot more complicated. Um, but I do think that they're working on really making it easy for international entrepreneurs, international investors, and now I'm, I'm so pleased to see that employees are finally uh, being looked after as well. This sounds, uh, this sounds similar to what we have uh, here in the Netherlands, and uh, I think we also used to have it just at one year, as you just said. Uh, and then I think people realized that one year was not even close to be enough uh, for startups. And I think uh, it ended up uh, being kind of extended uh, to uh, two or three years. 
Because I mean, yeah, if you, if you as an early stage startup come come to a new country and start uh, start working there, especially if you're on the accelerator stage, you might not still qualify for the normal startup visa in a year after you started, especially if you uh, do a pivot in the meantime or have any struggles, any problems, any delays in your development. Yeah, I do think you're right. I do think we saw actually some some issues with the one year visa. A lot of people, uh, yeah, they struggle to renew it. They don't know what to do after just one year because you know one year. Is also not a ton of time to get your business really up and running in a new country. Um, so yeah, I do think this four-year visa looks like it's a really good deal because an employee as well, you don't want to bring an employee over for one year and then have to struggle. Um, but I do think, yeah, they could probably also work on making the entrepreneurship visa a bit more generous as well. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure they will. Judging by, I think they will. Judging by the general <laughs> direction in which uh, the French tech ecosystem is developing and the regulation is developing, I'm pretty sure this is going to be the case. Yeah. Now, Roxanne, I'm sh I've shamelessly used you as a French person to ask about French tech visa, but you actually wanted to talk about uh, something else on the podcast. So please go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to talk about something related to International Women's Day, which was last week, um, because this is a topic that's like really close to my heart. I founded an organization in France uh, called start her and we look at promoting female entrepreneurship and women in tech um, and actually I've had this organization for about 10 years now so it's you know it's been quite a while that we can actually see the changes that are going on uh, with regards to women in tech but also every year we publish a report on the situation regarding women uh, women-founded companies raising funding and I think a lot of people know that a lot of venture capital does not go to female-founded companies. This is like a really ridiculously low number. So I actually wanted to share some of the numbers from the report. Uh, this is a report done by StartHer and KPMG is the partner that we do this with. So actually last year when we released this report, uh, roughly 14.5% of companies founded by females received money. And actually this number surprisingly to me, dropped. <laughs> so oh. actually this year, it's 2% lower. So it's 12.5%. Now, the good news for me was that actually the overall volume invested into female-founded companies has gone up by 68%. So that was really promising for me. We raised, I guess, female-founded companies in France raised over 239 million euros last year. So that's really, really nice to, to actually have that to be able to justify the drop in the number of female-founded companies. <laughs> um, but actually, when we also look at the average ticket size or, or founding amount, funding amount raised, it's still relatively low. So this is once again shocking to me that women, our female-founded startups, tend to raise, on average, $3 million, um, and they don't tend to raise huge amounts of funding. And we haven't actually been able to go into why that might be um, yet, but I think those are going to be things that we're going to start to look into. And we're also going to start looking into how can we get these numbers up? Uh, because one of the things we've also noticed, like here we're talking about female-founded companies, but what we consider to be a female-founded company is any company that has a female founder or co-founder. So when you look at companies that are only women founders and co-founders, so there's no men in the co-founding team, those numbers go dramatically lower and you're something around two to 3%. And so those are things that we really have to start figuring out why that is. Um, is it actually coming from the fact that there are just fewer female founded startups? Of course, that's impacting it a little bit, but also is there an investor bias? And I think a lot of people are starting to feel there's a huge investor bias um, and how can we correct for that? So I think those are some things that we're going to start looking at. I just wanted to share these numbers because these are specific to the French market, um, but I actually think they're trends that we see around the world and some issues that everybody should be aware of in the tech space. Do you also measure uh, this uh, sort of bias and how it differs between uh, male and female VCs? No, I actually think that's a really good point is that we should look at um, where the bias is coming from. Now, what's really interesting to me is that just over, you know, people that I know in my network, I'm seeing tons of male investors, and this is really promising, that are making an active and conscious decision to actually go and try and get more women in their deal flow. Um, I don't know if that actually converts into deals, but I think that's a good place to start. Um, and I do have women that are actually surprisingly uh, a little bit reluctant to go out and specifically look for women. They have this kind of feeling that, you know, if it's a good startup, it will come to me. I don't need to, you know, make a conscious decision for men or women or what have you. So it's really interesting to see how people respond to that. But I'm, I'm really pleased to see that a lot of men, especially 
are conscious and trying to do something about it. Yeah, I also think it's increasingly the case. Probably not nearly enough, but... Yeah, probably not enough, but we're, we're starting. You always got to start somewhere. And I have to say that like a few years ago when we started Start Her, um, these were issues that nobody talked about, that people didn't really care about. And it's really nice to see that, you know, over time, people are realizing that we actually have these issues. We have to change them. And VCs are not just sitting back going, you know, I don't care anymore. So that's really nice. This is French market data. Do you also know how it uh, compares to other European or American markets? Unfortunately, I don't know for the specific data. I had seen stuff from the US that was similar, that you know that it's like under 15%. It might even be under 10%. Um, but I, I don't have those specific numbers, no. Yeah, I'm just wondering basically the ballpark, whether it's very different in France or whether it's similar in, in France to other regions. No, I think generally most Western countries are under 15%, um, and some probably go a lot, lot lower than that. Well, Roxanne, thanks a lot for uh, for sharing this number. Uh, this is a great uh, initiative. So if anybody who's listening wants to participate in any way or give any feedback, uh, please feel free to contact us or Roxanne uh, directly. Now, moving forward in the list of news and interviews that we need to highlight today, the next one is an interview uh, with uh, Davide Dattoli, uh, the founder and CEO of Talent Garden, uh, which has just raised 44 million euros in funding. And I know we're cheating a little bit because this is actually the a new, a new story from uh, this week, not from last week. But since it happened before we recorded this podcast, it definitely counts. This interview actually was uh, held back in November uh, by Robin Wouters at the Futureland conference in Milan. Uh, so the founding round is not uh, being discussed here, but this is more of a background uh, information that you can get about the company. If you want to hear more about the deal itself, go on the Tech.eu website and check out the news story. Now let's hear the interview and we'll be back in a few minutes. Hey, this is Robin Waters from Tech.eu and I'm here in Futureland in Milan being held at the premises of Talent Garden. And I'm sitting down with the, the founder and CEO of Talent Garden, Davide Datoli. Can you briefly explain what Talent Garden is first? Talent Garden is the biggest European community for tech innovators. We have now more than 23 physical campus all over eight different countries, but work on co-working part, education and events to try to really empower the best tech talents all over Europe. And what's the reason we're here? What's Futureland? Futureland is two-day events to try to bring here the best uh, international speakers about artificial intelligence, about uh, blockchain, to try to really discover and help the Italian company to discover what does it mean to innovate thanks to this to Italian, to new technology. So let's go back to Talent Garden. Uh, give me some of the basics. Uh, when was it born? Why was it born? Is it a public-private partnership? Is it completely private? Um, just give me the basics. So we opened the company six years ago in a very small city in the north part of Italy, that is called Brescia. We are now all, all over Europe. We are totally private fund. We are supported by many investors that has believed in us, both uh, international and Italian, that try to support uh, and support us to scale all over Europe. We are now opening also in new countries. We have just opened in, in Dublin with the Dublin City University because in each market, we try to work with the best local ambassador in the innovation sector to try to create a collaboration between an international player and a local development. And so when you look for a partner in a different country, um, what are the criteria that you're looking for? What do they need to have for you to make uh, sense to have a partnership? Our mission is to really empower the best local tech talents. So we try to find partners that can help us in our mission. So institution or local ambassador, we are really working already in the community that can help us, thanks to our platform, to really support the local growth. So universities, so investors, uh, incubators, uh, uh, foundation that can help us to leverage on that and speed up the development of the local cities. So that gives you sort of a front row seat in uh, what is happening in Europe when it comes to early stage startups and emerging technologies. Does that not want to make you start a fund or at least some type of investment in these companies? We only want to be the platform where the ecosystem are growing. We don't want to enter in the investment sector. We are working with all the best investors all over Europe to support them, to scout our members and really uh, understand with them how they can grow. Our job is to create the ecosystem, create the condition where they can really speed up their growth. Now, I've been involved in a couple of co-working initiatives uh, in the past, and I know how it's notoriously difficult to monetize. So I'm wondering how that goes for you and how you differentiate and how you make it work. 
Absolutely. I think this business is about economy of scales. One small space is not sustainable. If you're running more than 23 different spaces all over Europe with big size from 4,000, 5,000 square meter, not only making the co-working part, but also education events, uh, it's a totally different job. Obviously, it's much more difficult, but on the other side, the results that we're doing is, is pretty great. We have doubling our size and our turnover year by year. We are now making a new important fundraising and we are working to create really something huge for Europe. What do the numbers look like? Are you profitable? We have been profitable since last year. This is the first year for us in which we are not. And also next year will be the same because we are really grow with a lot of new openings. But all our actual campus are profitable and our average is more than 35% profitability for each campus. Um, so going back to the international um, aspect of the network, you're mainly focused on Europe. Um, I get that. But how do you actually operationally do this? Because it's not easy to... Sort of, it's a people business, so you need proximity, um, you need someone on the ground. So how do you solve that? First of all, Europe doesn't exist. It's super difficult because in each country where you're going, uh, the condition, the bureaucracy and so on are totally, totally different. On the other side, I think that uh, the local ecosystem want to be connected and uh, we are working a lot to select the best talents in each, in each city. We have incredible teams that we try to hire everywhere and partnering with local partners help us to be local focused and really support the local development. Do you see yourself like, expanding outside of, the, of Europe at some point? For the next four years, our main focus is to develop all over Europe and try to connect the best ecosystem. On the other side, we are also working for a big opening in San Francisco to help our European community to connect with Silicon Valley. What about Futureland? Do you plan to export that in the future? Absolutely. We think that uh, as Stalin Garden is not only the co-working, is not only the education, but is also Futureland and big events to try to really create the condition where the ecosystem can meet. So uh, scaling Futureland in other cities is one of our goals for the next years. Great. Well, Davide, thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, this is my first time at Stalin Garden. I'm super impressed with the campus and uh, best of luck with everything. Thanks a lot for coming and for all your support. Hello and welcome back to the podcast of tech.eu. Still Andre Degler, your host, joined today by Roxanne Varza, one of the first hosts of the tech.eu podcast. We have just uh, discussed uh, French tech visas, uh, the initiative uh, start her uh, report on the female founders uh, uh, that uh, got funding in the French uh, startup ecosystem. Also talked about uh, the acquisition of SurveyMonkey by Usabilla and uh, heard two interesting interviews reviews with the founders of companies that either attracted funding or got acquired. Now it is time for uh, a few event highlights of uh, what we should be looking forward to. And this is something we, as usual, asked Natalie to do. So here comes the first pre-recorded segment uh, by Natalie. Hi, everyone. I wanted to pop in here to share some of the key events that you should put on your calendar. First is Startup Europe Summit 2019, which is happening in Cluj, Romania on March 21st and 22nd. It's an important event that happens yearly, and it brings together a number of key political stakeholders, ecosystem builders, and entrepreneurs to discuss some of the challenges and important issues necessary to propel Europe's startup ecosystem forward. You should all be there, and Robin and I will be in Cluj for the event. And I encourage you to come join us, especially if your company working on has anything to do with GovTech. So if you're around, please say hi. And looking further on into the month, do set your calendars for March 26th, 27th, and 28th, where Salamanca will be hosting Startup LA. We will have a bit more about this event next week. We will be launching a new report at Startup LA, which covers some of the key data and insights for the European tech ecosystem. It looks at some of the numbers from 2018 and kind of projects beyond. A key highlight is the great stakeholder takes from some of the most prominent voices in the startup ecosystem. So you won't want to miss that. Natalie, thank you so much uh, for this event. Uh, I'm pretty sure we all have found something to uh, add to our calendars. Now it's time for the best, well, for my favorite, at least uh, part of the podcast, that is the recommendations of books or stories or podcasts or uh, whatnot. And uh, I will give the virtual mic uh, back to Natalie for uh, her recommendations of the day. Thanks, Andre, for letting me share my recommendation for the week. So this week, I wanted to share Venture Deals, which is a new online course that's starting up next month by investors Brad Feld and Jason Mendelson of the Foundry Group. 
It's a free seven-week course on all the ins and outs of raising investment with in-depth features on how to raise capital, how to find the right VC, and how to negotiate. When it comes to fundraising, it helps to be as informed as possible and to really know your value as an entrepreneur. And this course helps to impart that and give an alternative perspective from the other side of the table. And sometimes when I suggest things like this, European founders will come back to me and say, well, they don't want to read about what's going on and coming out of the U.S., especially when it comes to fundraising, because things are different here. And that's right to an extent, but it's important to always have an alternative perspective. Rarely do early stage founders have the chance to sit down with experienced investors and see how things look from the other side of the table. Sometimes you get the chance to go to an event or meet someone for coffee, which is great, but this course goes really in depth about what to expect and how to know your strengths as you go into the fundraising process. And it's not static. They have different live chats where you can ask questions and the opportunity to network with others through the learning platform. So it's a great way for connecting with other people in your region and beyond. And why I'm recommending it is because I've done this course before when it was first run several years ago, and I can tell you that it's top-notch. And I've taught a university course online and done plenty of online learning myself, and I know these guys do a really great job. Also, the course is free, so there really isn't anything that should stop you. And it's a great way to arm yourself with more information and a different perspective. So I suggest you to check it out. And it runs from April 7th to May 31st. And the link for the course is in the show notes. And if you're signed up for the course, I'll see you there. Have a great week, everyone. Natalie, thanks a lot again for this. And uh, continuing with uh, uh, recommendations, uh, Roxanne, what did you want to talk about? Yeah, so I, um, I'm not sure if I'm breaking the rules by recommending an event, but I wanted to highlight a really big event that's taking place in Paris this week. It's called Hello Tomorrow. It is a huge deep tech conference, um, and it's really kind of just like blown all the other events around deep tech out of the water. So they bring in tons of terrific startups, innovators, professors from around the world to talk about really cutting edge innovation. Um, the entire event is in English. They give out actually cash prizes to a lot of the startups. Uh, so I think this is an event that a lot of people here don't want to miss. Um, it's happening on the 14th and 15th um, in Paris. So I think, you know, people who are interested in deep tech, who are interested also in knowing on what's going on, not just in France, but from all around Europe and around the world in deep tech, this is really something that they shouldn't be missing. Are you going yourself? Yeah, I'm definitely gonna gonna have to stop by. I think it's one of those events where you like can't not go, <laughs> even if you're maxed out on events, you still go to to Hello Tomorrow. So uh, they also have a really great founding team, a lot of local entrepreneurs, also co-founded by um, Xavier Duporte. He was on the MIT 35 under 35 list. So I think uh, it's a really great uh, great initiative that people should pay attention to. I also wanted to highlight something else um, that I think will actually interest people because it's not just specific to the French ecosystem. Um, it's actually just a really great newsletter on innovation, tech, politics. I think it really kind of captures a lot of what's going on in our in our world and our society. Um, so this is a newsletter by Nicolas Collin. So he's one of the founders of The Family, uh, which started out as kind of an accelerator in Paris, and now it's expanded to London and Berlin as well. And I I just love what he writes. I just think it's so brilliant. He kind of brings in a really great look on, you know, what's the current political situation? What are some of the trends that we're seeing? So I get so many newsletters, but this is really the one that I read from start to finish every time it shows up in my inbox. Um, he's also written a really great book that I should probably read soon called Hedge. Um, so I think people who are interested in, in signing up for his newsletter should just go straight on to his Twitter page. Um, so that is Nicolas, like Nicolas, underscore C-O-L-I-N, Colin, and they can find his link to his newsletter there. Um, but literally, like, I just can't recommend it enough. I think I think the guy is just a genius. Is it a weekly newsletter? Um, I'm pretty sure it's weekly or it's bi-weekly. Anyway, I, I tend to get it quite frequently, and it's long, so it takes me a while to read it. So I feel <laughs> like I get it every week. <laughs> yeah, I really struggle with long newsletters, I have to say. 
I kind I kind of prefer shorter daily ones. <laughs> you won't struggle with it because you'll read it and you're just like, yeah, Donald Trump said that, and you know, like this is going on in this country, and we should totally have bridged the two. And I just think he's full of like really, really smart insights, um, and he's very, very analytical. He's someone who's also worked um, for the Ministry of Finances for the French government, so he's someone really very credible. Has a terrific network. He's surrounded by brilliant people, and so I love the fact that he's really sharing a lot of his learnings through his newsletter as well. That sounds great. I I do know about uh, the family, but I haven't uh, I haven't seen this newsletter before, so I will definitely add it and see whether it sticks in my inbox. Cool, you have to tell me. <laughs> yeah, I will. Now, uh, what I wanted to recommend, uh, nothing as uh, deep or profound or politics related. Well, a little bit, uh, but not much. It's a story that's called uh, From Video Game to Day Job, How SimCity Inspired a Generation of City Planners. And in case you're young enough to not uh, know SimCity, it was a really great and uh, popular uh, city planning game. The first version came in 1993. It was called SimCity 2000. Then there was SimCity 3000 in 1999. And then SimCity 4 in 2003, and then a couple of more recent incarnations in 2013, I think. So for the story that I'm recommending, uh, Jessica Roy of Los Angeles Times interviewed more than 10 people who went from SimCity enthusiasts to actually professional city and transportation planners. And it looks like the game has influenced a whole generation of uh, planners, at least in the U.S., and uh, all of them uh, cite uh, the game as uh, something that influenced their choice of uh, the career path they decided to pursue. It's really, it's really fascinating. And also, having been made in the U.S., it turns out that the game kind of imposed a lot of American city planning standards, which I never noticed myself. I used to play SimCity back, what, 20 years ago, but uh, I didn't really realize that it was not something that we were used to seeing, for example, in Europe or elsewhere outside of the U.S. But the current version of the game, uh, as it turns out, is being developed by a studio located in Helsinki, owned by Electronic Arts. And this studio is uh, working hard to bring a more European perspective to uh, the cities uh, in uh, the game called SimCity Build It. That's the one that is the most recent and was released a few years ago. So there is much more on it uh, in the piece itself. It's a great read, uh, so please go and check it out, especially if you are still playing or used to play SimCity. Have you ever played SimCity, Roxanne? I haven't. I feel so embarrassed. Like I had to confess to like, you know, not knowing about the company that was acquired by SurveyMonkey and now I don't know. Never played SimCity. Of course, I've heard of SimCity. No, a question that I actually had is, um, so I can totally see that planning standards would be different between American city planning standards and European ones. But have you, can you actually say that you've noticed it having played the game? No, I haven't. So, so you, you, could not tell me that it was an American. No, city if it uh, so so back in the nineties. No, I don't think so. Well, I mean, back in the nineties, I had never been in Western Europe at all. So uh, I was still living in Ukraine. So it was just like not something I would be seeing around myself. But I would, I would definitely not be able to pinpoint it to uh, Europe or the U.S. But 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 apparently there are like uh, the city grids that are very American, as the article puts it, and the lack of uh, bicycle infrastructure and stuff like that. Uh, I think that's. Uh, yeah. That's something no that. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, but it, and also, I mean, even if you don't know SimCity, the same sort of franchise uh, uh, also released the game called Sim, The Sims, and that's I think much more uh, popular one that got much more players uh, during the during the notes. Have you played that one? No, <laughs> I'm gonna have to go. Do you actually do you actually, do you actually like video games, Roxanne? <laughs> I like Tetris. Is that really old school? Um, yeah, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to brush up on some new games. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you have that much time for uh, for video games, though. No, unfortunately, and we also don't have a ton of uh, gaming companies at Station F. But if anybody wants to recommend me a game, uh, go ahead and, and shoot over. I'll, I'll take a look at it. Do you have uh, some VR setups around? Yeah, we have VR setups. I'm actually, now that I'm telling you this, I'm super embarrassed to confess that my team actually has a video game room at Station F. So we have a room with uh -huh. tons of games. And actually, I think I just don't spend enough time in that room. So I'll go and I'll lock myself in there and I'll tell my team I'm working. <laughs> <laughs> Do it. So I will report back on the newsletter and you will report back on uh, uh, catching up with uh, video games. Super. <laughs> Sounds great.
Okay, this is time to wrap uh, it up. Uh, this is it for today's uh, podcast episode. I do hope you enjoyed listening to it. Do not miss our new episodes coming out at least weekly. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app, including Spotify or SoundCloud. Just look for tech.eu podcast and you will find us. If you are listening to this on iTunes, uh, leave us a review today. This will help others to find the show and will mean the world for us. Tell a friend or colleague about the podcast and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU and on Facebook. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions and opinions at andri at tech.eu and natalie at tech.eu. Roxanne, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. So enjoy the rest of your week and uh, talk to you next Wednesday. Bye bye. Bye. Bye.